Today's reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you can follow along on the screen uh, in the leaflets and also in the church Bibles. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for you all and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend some time in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, exploring uh, the work of God's grace amongst the Thessalonian church and therefore also amongst our church. It's the time of year that we're going to spend some time thinking about our vision for next year and how we are going to go forward uh, as a church. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I did lots of orienteering uh, growing up. Did anyone else do orienteering? Yeah, out there with your compass and your map and all that sort of stuff. And part of what I did was I was involved in cadets and I was being trained uh, as, a, as a cadet under officer to lead my patrol off into the wild blue yonder doing all the things that you do. Uh, and uh, I can remember at one point we were off in the wilderness above the Hawkesbury River uh, and north of Sydney and I'm there with my map and my compass and my little team of people and my instructor who was evaluating me. Uh, and uh, I led us successfully down the wrong ridge and into a swamp. Um, Needless to say, his assessment was not favourable. That would be, I think, fair to say. Uh, The trick with orienteering I worked out wasn't just to take a bearing and go for it. It's to continually go back and recheck to make sure that you are on the right bearing. I had made a slight error, which meant that when we came to a fork in the ridge, I just took the wrong spur. And instead of on the track down the bottom, I ended up in the swamp. Small variations at the beginning become big variations if they're not corrected. What we're trying to do as part of our vision series is to do that check, to make sure we're actually doing and being what we should actually do and be. And can I say, this is actually really important. 
is actually really important. Jesus told a story. He told a story about a master who was going away. And as he went away, he called his servants in and he gave them, he gave them money and a task to put it to work for his ends. And he would come back and evaluate. It's there in Matthew 25. You can read it. And like all Jesus' parables, the trick is to kind of work out who the people represent and what the main point that he's actually driving at. And it's not too hard, this one. Obviously, the master is Jesus, yes? And the servants, that's us. And he's given us gifts. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his gospel. He's given us the gifts and talents that make us who we are. He's given us everything we need to be faithful in the task that he's set for us. And so our vision series is to stop and ask, what is that task and are we being faithful? Just a couple of chapters later from Matthew 25, Matthew 28, Jesus gives what has become known as the Great Commission. The task that he sets his servants as he goes away. This is what you are meant to be doing, he says. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus' task that he gives to his disciples is to make more disciples, to be disciples who make disciples, and not just Jewish disciples, but disciples of all nations, and to include them, to incorporate them into the body of the church. That's the baptism part. Baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is to give them the mark of membership, of belonging. And then you see those newly made and incorporated disciples grow up in the faith that they have claimed as their own, teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded. He gave that to the church upon his ascension. When does the task finish? Parable tells us, doesn't it? When he returns, when he calls us in. And he asks what we have done. We've tried to capture a bit of Matthew 28 and a few other bits in our vision statement. You'll see it on the screen on our banners that are there. It's to be and to make disciples. That's what we think we should be doing because that's what Jesus told us to do. To be and to make disciples of Jesus Christ in Christian community. That's the church for the good of the world, not just for ourselves, but to bless others to the glory of God. And as we think about this over the next couple of weeks, and particularly today, I'm going to unpack this idea under four main headings. We're going to speak about the gospel proclaimed, then the gospel received, the gospel that unites, and the gospel that transforms. So why don't we pray as we dig into it? Father, we thank you for the wonderful work of grace that you have done Uh, amongst the church in Thessalonica oh so long ago, but also that you've done amongst us, that there are men and women, boys and girls who claim 
the Lord Jesus as King, who put their faith in you through the gospel of grace. And Father, we thank you that this work is all of you and for your glory. We ask, Lord, as we turn your attention, turn our attention uh, to your word today, that you would be speaking to us, challenging us, correcting us, rebuking us and training us so that we might serve you faithfully. And Father, we look forward to your son's return. Amen. The gospel proclaimed, number one, Paul, Silas and Timothy, they were missionaries. If you know where Thessalonica is, it's up at the top of Greece. And Paul, being a Jew, he spent most of his adult life up until that point down in Jerusalem. Okay? And then he'd wandered around a bit, but then he took the message as far as he could around the Roman Empire. And we read about when he comes into Thessalonica in Acts 17. They came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, is the Christ, he said. Paul goes into town. He finds the Jewish synagogue, the community of those people who through the Old Testament have been waiting, waiting for this Messiah, waiting for this Christ, waiting for the one who would bring all God's promises to its fulfillment, to their fulfillment. And he explains from the scriptures that this one has come and he is Jesus. And then we read in verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And the church in Thessalonica was born. How do you think you build a church? How do you build a church? Paul didn't go into Thessalonica and set up a structure. He didn't start building a building, you know, field of dreams like, if I build it, they will come. He didn't build a church. I've had the privilege of uh, being in Synod uh, most of yesterday. And uh, one of the things that bugs me more than anything about Synod is that we keep on talking about the Anglican church. And the thing that actually ties the Anglican church together is history and tradition and form and structure and all that sort of stuff. But that's not actually what binds church together. It might bind a denomination, but it's not building a church. Paul doesn't build a denomination, doesn't put up a structure. What does he do? He preaches the gospel of the dying and rising Christ. And that is what the church is built upon. Do you remember Jesus' words to Peter, who confesses that he is the Christ? On this rock I will build my church. Not the rock that is Peter, but the rock that is the testimony that Jesus is Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is what Paul testifies, and that is what sees the church in Thessalonica start. Buildings? No. We've got to thank the Lord. 
because this isn't much of a building. Keeps the rain off though, doesn't it? Preaching of the word is what builds the church. But brothers and sisters, what does it mean to belong to the church? Do we have a view that belonging is turning up? Do we have a view that just because we're here, we're in? Just because you're putting up with Cameron preaching another sermon at you. Yep, I'm earning my salvation. That's got to be purgatory. Anyway, no. Brothers and sisters, we have to see that this gospel has to be proclaimed and it also has to be received. It has to be received. When the Jews in Thessalonica objected to Paul's message, they bring an accusation. It's there in verses 6 and 7. These men have caused trouble all over the world and they have now come here and Jason, whoever Jason is, he's one of the early converts, has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. The opponents saw very clearly that Paul was preaching a gospel that called for allegiance. And that is what you see in the Thessalonians' response. Verse 5. This gospel, the gospel that they preached, came to you, Paul writes, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. This gospel that they proclaimed was received, and not just received as a message about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was received as the word of God. Let's unpack this power, spirit, conviction. Some people look at this and go, this is all the miracles that Paul did when he came into town. Okay? And uh, that wasn't uncommon. When he writes to the Corinthians, he talks about how the miracles validated him as a real apostle. He says to the Corinthians, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders and miracles. So that's what Paul's talking about here. Well, actually, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because the focus in verse 5 is actually on them receiving the gospel, isn't it? The gospel came to you. Not simply with words, but with power, Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. And I think these three things are talking about the one thing, which is the miracle of conversion. The miracle of repentance and faith. Because, brothers and sisters, this message, it must be received, but the only way it can be received, the only way that our allegiance can be given to God and not to the false gods of this world, is by an act of power through the Holy Spirit that brings deep conviction. Paul talks about it in verse 9 in another way. He talks about the report that's being said about them, that they turn to God from idols. Now, to be crass, it's polite to break up with your first girlfriend before you go out with your second. Yes? Yeah? That's what they're doing. In a spiritual God sense. 
They are breaking up. They are dumping God number one to embrace God number two. That's conversion. Okay. What's a God though? What's a God? Martin Luther, uh, one, of my, one of my idols, if I can have an idol, <laughs> in the good sense. Martin Luther describes a God in these terms, general terms. A God means that from which we are to expect all good. So just think about that. A God is something in your life that you look to to bless you. All good. You can think of it in terms of the security that you might have through that God, the comfort that you have, the significance. I know that my life has meaning and that I am special because of that God. The power it brings. You expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in distress. When things go wrong, what do you look to to save you? Luther gives us those two ideas. What we look to to bless us and what we look to to save us, that is our God. And to have a God is nothing else but to trust and believe him or it from the whole heart. So if you have a God, you hold to those things. You run to them in times of need. You look to them to bless you. That upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Now, the Thessalonians, before Paul came along, they probably had a whole range of gods. The ones who started, the Greeks and the the God-fearers that are there in the synagogue, maybe they're attracted to the God of Israel, but they probably had other gods alongside them. Gods representing power, Zeus. Pleasure, Bacchus, wisdom, Athena, money, sexuality, Aphrodite, Plutus. Could keep on listing them, could keep on going on. But it's funny, isn't it? The gods of 2,000 years ago, does anyone in our society worship power? Does anyone in our society worship sexuality, worship pleasure, worship wisdom, worship money? Of course they do. Of course they do. They just don't call them Aphrodite, Zeus, Athena. They look to them, though, to be the source of blessing and the source of salvation. But the Corinthians, not the Corinthians, the Thessalonians, the Corinthians would have done this too. But the Thessalonians, they reject them. They see that these gods, these promises are empty. They cannot fulfill them. And so they turn to the one true God. That's conversion. But the Bible tells us that this is not to be just a one-off turning. Not saying that you become Christian again and again and again. But did you remember what Jesus said? Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross. What's the next word? Daily. Each and every day. Martin Luther captures it 
like this. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. The entire life of believers is each and every day to turn to God, to put your trust in him and to turn away from the false gods of this world. Now, a number of years ago, I did a short-term mission into Malaysia. We were working in Sabah, particularly amongst the Chinese diaspora, the, 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 the Chinese community uh, in Sabah. And talking to the Chinese Christians there, they were acutely aware of just how beautifully pragmatic Chinese people are. And so you come in and you tell them about Jesus, and they love Jesus, And what they do is they add Jesus to all the other gods that they have. And so they worked out fairly early on that you had to preach Jesus alone, not Jesus also. And when people came to faith, what they were required to do before they were baptised as a demonstration that they had done what Paul talks about here, this turning from idols and turning to God, is that they would take the family altars set up in the rooms of the house, sometimes worth extraordinary sums of money, beautiful works of art, but altars to the traditional gods that they worshipped and they would burn them in front of their houses as a testimony to their neighbours as well as to themselves that they had turned to God from idols, that they weren't just bringing Jesus in among everything else. Brothers and sisters, as we stop and check our bearings, the danger for us is that we do smuggle the other gods in. That while we love Jesus, other things can come into play. How would you know? How would you know if that was the situation in your life? Can I give you a task? I want you to think about how you spend the key resources of your life. Your time, that's number one. And your money. Where those things go, what they are applied to, what determines how you use them, will show you what your God is. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be talking about budgets. The average Australian Christian gives less than 3% of their income away. Now, Scripture talks about 10%, but I think 10% is a guide. Generous is the goal. What stops you giving 10%? Maybe you're sitting at three. What would stop you giving that extra bit away? Not, maybe not to Trinity Hills, maybe to other things. What would stop you overflowing in generosity? Your time. Kez, each year, struggles to find leaders to build disciples of our youth and children. Why? Because we're all so 
busy. But if this is the one task that Jesus set his church to be and make disciples, to make disciples of all nations, why wouldn't we, if Jesus truly is our Lord and Master, actually organise our week and our commitment so that we can do that? Why is it that Jesus so often gets what is left? We don't say no to the boss. We keep our commitments to the football club, to the soccer, to the hockey, to the netball. We do all the family stuff. Why is it that maybe church on Sunday becomes our default? If something else comes up, we go to that. But if I've got nothing else, I'll come here. Why wouldn't we be prepared to say to our family, actually, I'm meeting with God's people this morning. I'd love to see you after that. What is it that calls the shot? Not saying that you can never not come to church. Not saying that. It's not saying that being part of a soccer club or whatever is bad. I'm not saying that. But brothers and sisters, sometimes we are so busy with so many other things that I think the danger is that we are actually looking to those things to bless us. Or at least we want Jesus and those things to bless us. Rather than actually recognising that we are called, as we sang, to seek first the kingdom. And he is the one, not the gods of our age, that will bless us. Let's keep going. This gospel, this gospel that is proclaimed and received, it binds us to one another and to God. Paul, Silas and Timothy, they write to not the Christians of the city of Thessalonica, they write to the church. And the church is just a simple word that means the gathering, the community of the people who claim Christ as Lord. The gathering of the community of people that God has brought to himself. Without labouring the point, do we treat that really, really lightly? I love my family, but Jesus did not die so I could be part of my family. I love a lot of the communities that I belong to. And I'm sure you do too. But the only community that Christ went to the cross to make it possible for us to be a part of is his church. Does that not make it the number one community that should trump all others? This is why Jesus said if someone doesn't hate their father and their mother. Because he loves us more than anything else. Do we hold lightly the unity that we have in Christ? This gospel, it also transforms us. Verse 3, Paul's praying. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Your labor, literally your sweaty, dirty toil, Produced by love, prompted by love. Your endurance inspired by hope. Literally, what this is, 
is your work that comes from your faith, your labor that comes from your love, your endurance that comes from your hope. And all of these are in Christ. Do you see what Paul is saying? That the work, the labor, the endurance, the things that he's praising God for are products of the gospel of grace. So this gospel that we receive, it transforms our life. It empowers our life because our life, our effort, our labor, our endurance flows from it. Produced by it. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. This is the power of the Christian life. What about grace? We use grace wrongly when we use grace to make us lazy. Someone once wrote, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. And I ask you, what motivates you more? Duty or love? It's love, of course, isn't it? What wouldn't you do for someone that you love? I buy a gift for my wife. Obviously, I factor in the cost. But that is massively secondarily to the fact that I want to show my love to her. I don't sit there and go, oh, 20 bucks is about all I got. I have to balance the budget at the end of the day. I don't want to be stupid about it. But you know what? Is that all the riches that we have to draw on are actually God's riches that he's given to us. So how much more can we overflow in love? This Grace transforms, this gospel transforms, and it transforms us and through us transforms others. Paul says there in verses 5 to 7, You know how we lived among you from your, for your sake. You became imitators of us and the Lord. So they've learnt and seen Christianity in action from Paul and you remember 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, imitate me, Paul says, as I imitate Christ. There's a cascade, Jesus, Paul, the Thessalonians, and then so you also became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It flows down. Leaders imprint themselves on their congregations, upon their youth groups, upon their growth groups, all your strengths and weaknesses at one level are my strengths and weaknesses. But God is sovereign and the gospel is the one that imprints itself person by person by person. Going back to that idea of youth and kids, you have an opportunity by God's grace to shape people for eternity. His grace is sufficient for that task. He's given you what you need. Don't be daunted by it. But surely it's worth stepping up for. This gospel, it changes us and it changes our whole allegiance. 
There in verse 9, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God. The word there for serve is to serve as a slave. It's the slave word. Why? Because Jesus is our master. He is our master and his concerns must be our concerns. We don't fit in our master's concerns on the side. Imagine a slave in the ancient world saying, actually, I'm running my business here. Even though you own me, I'll try and do a little bit of your work later. It wouldn't cut it. You as an employee, imagine just running your business on the side. No, actually, running your business up front and running the boss's business on the side. How would that go? Maybe you're in sales and you're way more concerned to sell your stuff than you are to sell the stuff that you're actually commissioned and paid to sell. How would that work? Would your boss be impressed? We are to serve God. We are to wait for his son. He will return. And when he does, he will call us in. And he will ask for an account. And we know that we are saved by grace. But grace that has been truly grasped transforms life. Surely we want to hear our master say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. Now I will give you a lot. Come Enter into the blessings of your master. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in us. Father, help us to calibrate our hearts against the gospel of grace against your love for us that has been poured so lavishly into our hearts by the Spirit. We pray, Father, that he would be encouraging us, convicting us, rebuking us, and spurring us on that we might serve you in every good deed. Father, grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are soft, that we might see the wonders of the gospel that you have given us and be transformed in an ongoing way, day by day, as we seek to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.